Hello, listeners. Hi. I'm Andrew. I'm Rachel. Mercury is sitting beside us, and this is Joy Binge. No, it's not. What is it? <laughs> armchair Apocrypha. That's right. This is Armchair Apocrypha. This is the podcast where armchair experts tell possibly true stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, we are recording on a Wednesday, which we usually don't do. Normal but, day for us to record. Right. But uh, Rachel is going on vacation. Yes, I am. Where are you going? Vegas. Vegas. I don't plan on coming back. <laughs> <laughs> plan on just staying there the rest of my life. So Rachel's going to stay there, and mm-hmm. I'm going to find a new co-host. Yep, yep. Um, hopefully someone who can do it regularly. <laughs> um, are you excited? I'm so ready. Yeah. Tomorrow needs to come so fast. I'm Getting so away ready from for work. It. Get away from Yeah. I'm so ready for it. Yeah. You have been busy for like the last three weeks. I know. So. I know. I'm ready to sleep and gamble and yeah. drink. <laughs> yeah. I'm officially on vacation now, and it hasn't quite hit me, and I don't think it will until I get on the plane tomorrow. And you guys are going hiking, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to yeah. go like a four-mile hike, because uh, the girl who lives there says, like, at the top, you can get this very nice view of the city, and that yeah. sounds awesome to me. Sounds really nice. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently, Andrew's throwing parties, and I'm not here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Cameron, Katie... Maybe Matt, maybe Mary um, are just going to play a follow RPG tomorrow mm-hmm. um, over pizza, uh, which I've been pushing for for a while, but everybody's always busy all the time. Yeah, so, it's weird. <laughs> um, now that Rachel's going out of town on vacation, Mercury, don't do that. Uh, now that Rachel's going out of vaca- uh, town on vacation, I finally have the time to go play a follow RPG. Yep. All right, I'm comfortable. <laughs> you are so distracting, Mercury. I'm sorry. This is so unprofessional. Are you gonna do uh, any other parties while I'm gone? Uh, maybe. Nice. Uh, Mary did say that she would come over and guest host while you're gone. Nice. Um, so Can she pretend to be me instead of being herself? We could try that. I don't know. I want to see what her interpretation is of me. To I be don't honest. know how good she is at Rachel impersonations. Oh, I want to hear possible. it. Tell, she has at least do two minutes of it at the beginning. Two minutes of yeah. it? Yeah. Okay, I'll tell her that. Please. Uh, but also, Mary is also very busy all the time. Yeah. So I don't know if she'll actually make it over. Well, she does. Tell her what I said. Yeah. And I'll probably have somebody else over. Nice. Yeah. That'll be good. Well, uh, last week, uh, Katie, Cameron, Matt, and I went out to see us. Mm-hmm. And Rachel was going to come too, but at the last minute, she went to Cincinnati. Um, unexpectedly. <laughs> and so Cameron just uh, messages the, the uh, signal oh, yeah. group that we have and was like, uh, Rachel's in Cincinnati, by the way, um, which I had no idea about. <laughs> and I was very tempted to text back like, oh, man, Rachel, I wish you would have told me that. I would have scheduled an orgy for tonight. <laughs> uh, but I beat you home. <laughs> <laughs> she did beat me home from seeing us. Yes. Ugh. Yeah. I'm ready for it. Yeah. I'm going to watch it eventually. Us is a really good movie. Um, if you haven't seen it, very clever writing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of really good cinematography. Uh, I figured out the um, the last twist fairly close to the beginning of the movie. So I kind of spoiled myself a little bit. Um, I probably won't be able to figure it out. <laughs> Katie also figured it out fairly early. so you, you And may. she enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she said that it was she found it really scary I didn't really find it that scary Um, once the uh, once they get into the second act where you finally meet the the villains of the film 
Um, it kind of reminded me of funny games. Um, so the rest of it kind of felt like it was playing off of funny games rather than any kind of like um, really scary yeah. stuff. It wasn't anything, how, how should I put it? It wasn't like, it didn't like grip me mm-hmm. in like a visceral way. It was more you. of a, an intellectual thing. I like that. Yeah. Um, do you want to get into today's episode? Yeah, I'm ready to hear who you're talking about. Uh, do you remember last year when I talked about Sugako Kano? Um, can you refresh my memory? She was the Japanese anarchist who was executed yes. by Heng. Yes. I have another Japanese anarchist Great. for Great. Almost a year later. I actually went back and looked it up, and it's almost exactly oh, a good. year. Um, this one is Ito Noe. Mm. Have you ever heard of her? No. She was a Japanese anarchist, a social critic, an author, and a proto-feminist. Um, she was born on the island of Kyoshu on January 21st, 1895. Uh, she was born into an aristocratic family, um, and she convinced her uncle to pay for her education at Ueno Girls High School in Tokyo. Very similar to the woman I talked about last week. Yeah. Um, it was at this school that she developed her affinity for literature and writing. Okay. She was particularly fond of the progressive ideas of the time from Western and Japanese writers. And I'll yes. talk a little bit about that more okay. later. Uh, it was during her, summer sem- her second summer semester, um, her second summer vacation uh, in 1910 at Ueno Girls School when her family pressured her into marriage with a man named Suematsu Fukutaro. Great. Uh, Suematsu had recently returned to Kyoshu from uh, the United States, and uh, the family believed that, um, or the family told her that marrying Suematsu would be a stipulation that she had to agree to in order to continue her education. That's awful. Really bad. Uh, Ito wanted her own complete freedom, so she immediately started uh, to plot a way to escape the relationship. That year, she moved to uh, Tokyo against her family's wishes, living with a former teacher, Suji Jun, um, who she had met at the girls' high school. Mm -hmm. After graduation, Ito's relationship with Suji Suji, uh, became romantic, and they had two sons, Makoto, who was born on January 20th, um, 1914, and Ryuji, who was born on August 10th, 1915. Okay. Uh, Ito and Suji were officially married in 1915. Um, the years between like 1913 and 1916, a lot happened here, so I'm going to be jumping back and forth okay. a little I'll bit. Okay, I'll try and keep up. Um, in 1913, Ito published translation of American anarchist Emma Goldman's The Tragedy of Women's Emancipation, in the Japanese journal Saito. Um, her work impressed another anarchist translator, Sake Us- Osugi, and they met during a meeting of Saito correspondence. Sometime in late 1915 or early 1916, which you may remember is the year that she married her husband, mm-hmm. um, uh, Ito, who was married to Suji Jun, and Sake, who was married to Hori Yasuki, Hori Yasuko um, began having an affair. Nice. I'm trying to keep up with these names. Uh, so you've got Ito, who's the main character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's married to Suji. Suji, got it. Uh, she's having an affair with Sake, 
who is married to Hori. Um, and Sake is also already having another affair with a girl named Ichiko Kamichika. Ooh, man, that's a lot. So he's got three girlfriends. Got it. She's got a husband and a boyfriend. Got it. That's too much to keep up with. <laughs> in February of 1916, Ito and Sake were spotted together in a Tokyo park. Um, she was holding his hand and she was kissing him in public. At the time, kissing in public and couples holding hands in Japan were considered to be deeply immoral acts with no decent person should ever engage in. Mm. And many people in the park chided the couple for their behavior. Wow. Later that day, when Osugi uh, Sake met his other lover, Ichiko, he told her that he had kissed a woman in public for the first time in his entire life, which, as the woman in question was not Ichiko, caused a very heated scene. <laughs> Ito, who was hoping to see Osugi soon, had followed him to Ichiko's apartment, was listening in, and chose to knock on the door to involve herself in this conversation. As you do. As one does. Uh, this, in turn, caused an angry scene between the two women over who loved Osugi the best. Oh, my God. While Osugi insisted that he loved both of them equally. Ugh, eye roll. <laughs> Osugi continued to live with his wife while seeing both Ichiko and Ito until November of 1916, when, in a moment of jealousy, Ichiko followed Osugi and Ito to a countryside inn. Upon seeing that they had spent the night together, she attacked Osugi with a knife as he emerged out of his room in the morning and stabbed him several times in the throat. Ugh. Okay. It's bad. That's gross. Osugi was hospitalized as a result of his wounds, and his wife left him during his stay in the hospital. <laughs> Which, honestly, fair. I mean, yeah. Uh, beginning in 1916, Ito lived and worked with Osugi and continued to rise in the feminist groups uh, that she was involved in uh, while showing growing leadership potential. As an anarchist, Ito was highly critical of the existing political system in Japan, which led her to call for, an anarchist, uh, for anarchism to exist in everyday practice, mm -hmm. namely that people should in various small ways seek routinely to undermine the kakutai, or the national identity, which was the basis of the emperor's governance. Ito was especially critical of the way that most Japanese people automatically deferred to the state and accepted the claim that the emperor was a god who had to be obeyed unconditionally, leading her to complain that it was very difficult to get most people to think critically. As someone who had challenged the Kakatai, Ito was constantly harassed by the police to the point that she complained of feeling that her home was a prison, as she could not go out without a policeman stopping her. Oh, God. Um, in 1913, Ito... No, not in 1913. Uh, Ito had joined the Blue Stocking Society as producer of the feminist arts and culture magazine Saito. Uh, yes, in 1913. I was right the first time. Uh, contributing until 1916. Okay. In her last year as editor-in-chief, she practiced an inclusion attitude toward content. Uh, she opened the pages as, to extended discussions of abortion, prostitution, free love, and motherhood. Whoa! Right? Big topics, then, <laughs> in Japan. Saito founder Hiratsuku Raicho would describe her as a writer with intense and natural emotion. Emotional lady. Yep. <laughs> she never stabbed anybody, so not too emotional. Touché. <laughs> Under Ito's editorship, Saito became a more radical journal, uh, journal that led uh, the government to ban five issues as, thre as threatening to the Kakutai. Uh, the, February, the February 1914 edition of Saito was banned by the censors because of a short story Ito had published in the journal titled Shupan, 
about a young woman who escapes from an arranged marriage and is then betrayed by her lover who promised to escape with her from Japan. The June 1915 edition of Saito was banned for an article calling for the abortion, uh, for abortion to be legalized in Japan. Three other editions of Saito were banned because of an erotic sto- short story where a woman happily remembers having sex the previous night. Another God edition. <laughs> women don't have sex. What? Uh, another edition for a short story dealing with the breakup of an arranged marriage, and the final edition for an article titled "To the Women of the World Calling for Women to Marry for Love and Not for Convenience." Mm-hmm. Uh, the narratives in Ito's stories held common themes. They were all influenced by her own thoughts on her political and personal beliefs, painting a vivid literary picture of the issues affecting her at the time. Her personal writings published in Saito dealt with the many problems that she had dealt with in her own life, such as arranged marriages, denial of free love, and sexual nature that had been repressed by Japanese society. Her short story, Meioi, in 1914, told the story of a student who moves in with her ex-school teacher, only to find out that he had been intimate with a former classmate. Oh, this sounds very uh, similar to her real life. The That's story, so weird. The story directly parallels her own life with Suji Jun. <laughs> Uh, Tenke, another one of her stories published in Saito, dealt with more of her own issues as the main protagonist is drawn to social activism as her marriage proves to be an obstacle to social justice. Ito's writing was a way for her to express her own own personal beliefs. She often used her own real-life events to draw upon in order to create her stories. Mm Mm-hmm. Ito had Saito become more concerned with social issues than it had been before, and in 1914 to 1916, she engaged in a debate on the pages of Saito with another feminist, Yamakawe Kukue, who you don't need to remember, okay. about whether prostitution should be legalized or not. Ito argued for the legalization of prostitution for the same reason that she favored the legal legalization of abortion, namely that she believed that women's bodies belonged only to men and that the state had no business telling a woman what she may or may not do with her body. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't follow that. Can you repeat that? I don't. That doesn't make sense to me. So you own your body, no, right? Uh, no, I, wait. <laughs> Start again from the beginning. <laughs> uh, furthermore, Ito argued that the Japanese social system did not offer many economic opportunities to women, and that most Japanese prostitutes were destitute women who had turned to selling sex in order to survive, which led her to the conclusion that these women should not be punished for merely seeking a means to live. In February 1916, Saito published its last edition due to lack of funds, as the government had prevented distributors from carrying the magazine. Shocking. Um, Skip forward a few years. All of this was the most productive time of her life. Skip forward a few years to 1923. Okay. Uh, There is a uh, earthquake in Kanto known as the... Do not tell me this is how she dies. This is not how she dies. Okay. Uh, There's an earthquake. Earthquake in Kanto, known as the Great Kanto Earthquake, Mm -hmm. blah. (laughs) Um, In the chaos immediately following the earthquake, um, Ito Osugi and his six-year-old nephew uh, Mune Kazu um, are arrested uh, by a group of military police. I'm looking for the name, the Kempeitai. Okay who I talked about in the Sugaku mm-hmm. Kano episode. The Kempeitai arrest Ito, Osugi, and the six-year-old. Um, once they're arrested, they are severely beaten in their cells, um, and then their bodies are thrown into an abandoned well 
uh, once the bodies are exhumed from the well, it's shown that they, are, they were beaten and strangled to death. And that is how all three of them died. Beaten and strangled to death. Beaten in their cells and then strangled That's to awful. death. And then thrown into a well. Because uh, why not at that point? Yep. And it was all three of them. Ito, Usugi, and the six-year-old. The operation was led by Lieutenant Masahiko Amakasu. Um, and because they were such high-profile anarchists in Japan, together with the young child, it became known as the Amakasu Incident and sparked shock and anger throughout Japan, which resulted in Amakasu being court-martialed and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Three years later, a man named Hirohito becomes the emperor of Japan. Uh, he releases Amakasu from prison. Um, and so Amakasu, who was sentenced to 10 years in prison, only ended up serving three. Shocking. Uh, Ito and Osugi and the nephew are buried in the Kutsunoya Cemetery in Blah. Aoiku Shizuoka. That's the story of another. Well, you didn't end that on Japanese. a positive note, so I'm going to need you to redo that again. I did not. And, and I chose Joy Binge for our, our fake podcast, so <laughs> I really lied to everybody. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, there's no joy in that end. There is no joy in that end. It is not a very happy ending. But I really enjoyed the story until the end. Yeah. Just joking. You'll always have those, those few years between 1913 and 1916. Yeah, I'll cherish them forever. <laughs> That was good. Thank you. I enjoyed that. Um, so I thought I'd do another president. Which president? I'm going to do Garfield. Garfield. Today. Okay. Our 20th president. Our 20th president. What do you know about him? Uh, was he the bath the bathtub one? No, that was Taft. That was Taft. Uh, then very little. Then, yeah. In most people. And you'll find out why. So James Garfield was born the youngest of five children on November 19th, which is my niece's birthday, <laughs> 1831, but she was born many years later, yeah. in a log cabin <laughs> in Orange Township, Ohio. Okay. Because half the presidents are from Ohio, Ohio, like seven are, I think. So are the um, astronauts. astronauts. Yeah, that's the funnier joke. <laughs> Everybody just wants What's to get out of Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Garfield was raised in, like, poverty. They say he was probably the poorest president poorest person to become president yeah um in a household led by his strong mother eliza um james they it's rumored that james was her favorite child probably because he was the baby and um the two remained close for the rest of his life and his father died when he's he was two years old so his father wasn't there as an avid reader of adventure novels james garfield aspired to be a sailor Instead, as a teen, he settled for a position towing barges up the Ohio Canal to help support his family. From 1851 to 1853, Garfield attended Western Reserve Eclectic Institute. It's now Hiram College in Hiram, Ohio. And I have heard of the city, at least. Yeah. Um, he, spent, he then spent two years at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Right. And that is where he proved to be a strong student and maybe more importantly, a very skilled public speaker. Okay. So after graduating from there, he went back to um, the Eclectic Institute and there he taught Greek and Latin as well as other subjects. And then actually a year later in 1857, he was named president of the school. He worked his way up. 
In addition to his duties, Garfield became, um, as the president of the school, he became an ordained Christian minister and studied law independently because why wouldn't you? Of course he did. Um, he would be admitted to the Ohio Bar Association three years later in 1860. In 1858, he married Lucretia Rudolph. How often do you hear the name Lucretia anymore? You don't. You don't, really. Um, who worked as a teacher and had been a classmate of his uh, years ago. Yeah. Do you know how many children they had? Uh, four. Seven. Seven. They had seven children. I was close. You were pretty close, actually. <laughs> that was not far off. In 1859, Garfield was a member of the Republican Party, which was founded in the 1850s by anti-slavery leaders, mm -hmm. and was elected to the Ohio Senate. With the threat of an American Civil War looming, he used his position as a state senator to advocate for forcing seceding southern states to rejoin the Union. Mm -hmm. When the war eventually did break out, uh, Garfield joined the Union Army and served as a lieutenant colonel with the 42nd Ohio Volunteer Infantry. Despite a lack of military experience, he proved to be an effective leader. In November of 1861, his brigade drove Confederate forces out of eastern Kentucky at Paintsville and Prestonburg. Good job. Yeah. So, in recognition of his success, Garfield was actually promoted to Brigadier General at mm. the age of 30. Brigadier General. Um, Garfield's command was the sole remaining force in eastern Kentucky, and he announced that any men who had fought for the Confederacy would be granted amnesty if they returned to their homes and lived peace peaceably, is how they put it, and remained loyal to the Union. Yeah. The proclamation was surprisingly lenient as Garfield now believed the war was a crusade for eradicating slavery. Mm -hmm. um, following a brief skirmish at Pound Gap, which I don't know where that is, I didn't look it up, the last rebel units in the area were outflanked and they retreated to Virginia. He also um, was known to be at a several other battles, um, Battle of Shiloh, Battle of Chickamauga, Chickamauga, um, in 1862, while still serving in the Army, Garfield was elected to represent his home state in the U.S. House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. Initially, he was reluctant to resign his post. He was eventually convinced to do so by uh, President Lincoln and left the military in late 1863, having achieved the rank of Major General by then. Okay. Um, so now we're going to talk about his congressional career, obviously, because now we're going on to that. Garfield began serving in the House in December of 1863, while the war is obviously still going on, and would remain in Congress until 1881. Okay. And during this time, he served on a number of important congressional committees. Which um, ones? I'll tell you a few. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to go into, like, um, however, his career is not without its challenges in a political period, marked with scandal and corruption. His ethics were called into question, and he was accused but never found guilty of accepting bribes um, at the Credit Mobile scan Scandal of 1872, which had to do with money and railroads, okay. is what I basically looked up. I believe it. Um, but people say, like, did he do it? No. But did he, like, tell the whole truth? Probably not. Right. Um, another issue that caused Garfield trouble in his 1874 re-election bid was the so-called salary grab of 1873 which increased the compensation for members of Congress by 50%. Wow. Retroactive to 1871. Garfield was responsible as Appropriations Committee Chairman for shepherding the Legislative Appropriations Bill through the House during the debate in February. Um, blah, blah, blah. It passed in the House of... In the, 
It passed the House and eventually became law. The, the, the law was very popular in the House as almost half the members were lame ducks, but the public was outraged, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of Garfield's constituents blamed him, though he refused to accept the increase. And what was a bad year for Republicans who lost control of the House for the first time since the Civil War, Garfield has had his closest congressional election winning with only 50%, 57% of the vote. 57%. Yeah. Wow. Now we're going to go on to the presidential election of 1880, which is very interesting. Okay. So having just been elected to the Senate, um, Garfield entered the 1880 election campaign, um, committed to uh, promoting Sherman as his choice for the Republican presidential nominee. Okay. Besides Sherman, the early favorites for the nomination was someone named Blaine, former President Grant, um, but several other candidates also attracted delegates as well. Okay. As the convention began, Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York, the floor leader for the Grant Forces, uh, proposed that the delegates pledge to support the eventual nominee in the the eventual nominee in the general election. Uh-huh. When three West Virginia delegates declined to be so bound, Conkling sought to expel them from the convention. Garfield rose to defend the men, giving a passionate speech in defense of their right to reserve judgment. The crowd turned against Conkling, and he withdrew the motion. Mm. After speeches in favor of the other front runners, Garfield rose to place Sherman's name in the nomination. His nominating speech was well received, but the delegates mustered little excitement for the idea of Sherman as the next president. Right. Um, the first ballot showed Grant leading with 304 votes and Blaine in second with 284. Sherman's 93 placed him in a very distant third. <laughs> Subsequent ballots quickly demonstrated a deadlock between Grant and Blaine because neither one had the 379 votes needed for the nomination. So, Jeremiah Rusk, a member of the Wisconsin delegation, and Benjamin Harrison, an Indiana delegate, mm-hmm. um, sought to break the deadlock by shifting a few of the anti-Grant votes to a dark host candidate, Garfield. Okay. Garfield gained 50 votes on the 35th ballot, on the 35th ballot and the stampede began. James Garfield actually protested to the other members of his Ohio delegation that he had not sought the nomination and had never intended to betray Sherman, but they overruled his objections and cast their ballots for him. In the next round of voting, nearly all of the Sherman and Blaine delegates shifted their support to Garfield, giving him 399 votes and the Republican nomination. Most of the uh, Grant forces backed the former president to the end, creating a disgruntled party. Blah, blah, blah. So basically, he is one of the few presidents who didn't even seek a nomination and got nominated. And then he was like, okay, <laughs> I guess I'm going to run for president. Impressive. It's, it's crazy, yeah. It's, which I think is so unheard of, obviously, especially now. Um, and so Chester Arthur was uh, chosen to be the vice president. In the end, um, there's not too much about the actual run for the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to go into that, but I will tell you about the results. So well, in the end, it you wasn't were... wasn't a very exciting election season. Yeah, and the, well, yeah, and there wasn't much written about it right. either. Um, fewer than 2,000 votes of the more than 9.2 million popular votes cast separated the two candidates. But 
in the Electoral College, Garfield had an easy victory over Hancock, 214 to 155, because hmm. Electoral College is stupid. <laughs> um, Abolish the Electoral College. Following his inauguration on March 4th, 1881, Garfield mm. spent most of his time on the job, as most presidents do, assembling his cabinet and making other appointments. Without a clear referendum in the election and due to the split in the Republican Party, Garfield had to appease like both like sides of the Republican Party right. in his appointments. Um, doo -doo -doo. That's all that's important about that. After nearly four months of political wrangling and maneuvering, Garfield sought to finally move forward with his agenda for civil service reform and other initiatives, but that didn't happen, as we know, because he was one of the four presidents that was assassinated. Yep. Um, a disgruntled attorney who was refused a political appointment um, is responsible for it. So on July 2nd, 1881, Charles Godot, Godot, good not Godot. <laughs> Charles. Charles. Gateau. Gateau. yeah. Fired two shots at Garfield while the president was en route to Williams College reunion. Yeah. <laughs> As Garfield fell to the ground, Gateau exclaimed, I am a stalwart and Arthur is president now. And they ended on an exclamation point, so I wanted to end on an exclamation <laughs> point. So here's a little bit of sidestep. The assassination, so Garfield is only was the second president to be assassinated. Uh-huh. Um, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln was deemed a fluke due to the Civil War, and Garfield, like most people, saw no reason why the president should be guarded. Garfield's movements and plans were often printed in the newspapers. Gateau oh knew the president would leave Washington for a cooler climate on July 2nd and made plans to kill him before then. He purchased a gun, hashtag America, he thought would look good in a museum, <laughs> and followed Garfield several times, but each time his plans were frustrated or he lost his nerve. Uh -huh. His opportunities dwindled to one. Garfield's departure by train for New Jersey on the morning of July 2nd, 1881. Coteau concealed himself by the ladies' waiting room at the 6th Street station of the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad. Oh. Potomac. Potomac, yes. I was thinking of Monopoly. <laughs> um, for where Garfield was scheduled to depart. Most of Garfield's cabinet planned to accompany him at least part of the way. Yeah. Blaine, who was to remain in Washington, came to the station to see him off. The two men were deep in conversation and did not notice Coteau before he took out his revolver and shot Garfield twice, once in the back and once in the arm. The time was 9.30 a.m. Yeah. The assassination attempted... The assassin, sorry, attempted to leave the station but was quickly captured. I don't think he had a follow-through with this, to be honest. Especially if you shout, yeah. Arthur is president now. As Blaine recognized him and Gateau made no secret of why he had shot Garfield, um, the assassin's motivation to benefit the stalwarts, which is like the one side of the Republican Party, yeah. reached many with the early news of the shooting causing rage against the faction. Among those at the station was Robert Todd Lincoln, whose father was killed 16 years earlier by an assassin. Welp. Duh. Have you heard the story about Robert Todd Lincoln, about how he's been at three presidential assassinations no i didn't know that so he was there like somewhere nearby when his father's assassinated he yeah. was there literally at the station when obviously garfield and he was somewhere nearby when mckinley was assassinated like 20 years after this so he was bad luck yeah that's the whole thing it's talking about how he's like a cur <laughs> he thought he was cursed and then um yeah i might have to do it about something about robert todd lincoln one day curses aren't real everybody <laughs> i put a curse on you <laughs>
And now you're mine. So Garfield lay in the White House mortally wounded and near death for almost three fucking months. He did not die past. Doctors were unable to locate the bullet in his back. Mm -hmm. Um, Even inventor Alexander Graham Bell tried unsuccessfully to find the bullet with a metal detector he designed. Was this the one where when he got shot, everybody tried to get the bullet out? Yeah. They talk about how um, if the doctors had done a better job, he probably would have survived. Right. And if they had the tools, obviously, today. But that's a duh statement. But yeah, this is the one where they like kind of point the finger at the doctors and like, you guys didn't actually help him. Right. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to, you know, whatever. But yes, this is that one. Um, So on September 19th, 1881, Garfield, at the age of 49... He was only 49, died from an infection and internal hemorrhage, and he was buried in Cleveland, so back home, because where he was born was really close to Cleveland. Um, and so that is the short life of President Garfield. I have, have been able to do a couple fun facts for you. <laughs> okay. So he is the second shortest term president after Harrison, who got uh, Sick the, the who yeah got yeah. the I almost said the flu whatever he got pneumonia or something <laughs> he got pneumonia while making his and died two uh, inauguration weeks later. speech yeah and so Garfield was president for about six months or for a little over six months but three of the months he wasn't lying in the bed <laughs> with a bullet in his back um so yes. Um, Garfield was the first left-handed president. First lefty. Yep, first lefty. He was also the first ambidextrous president. It was said you could ask him a question in English and he could simultaneously write the answer in Greek with one hand and in Latin with the other. Could he do it with his feet too? I didn't say that. Okay. I think that one of my civics teachers told me that he could also write with his feet. That's but cool. But I'm not sure if that's true or not. That might be hashtag on Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Garfield was the last of seven presidents who was legitimately born in a log cabin. (laughs) Um, Only, and this is my favorite one, only two times, which I think that's two more than I would have ever guessed, only two times in American history have there been three presidents in the same fucking year. Oh, yeah. First time in 1841, and the second was this time in 1881 when Rutherford, Rutherford B. Hayes relinquished his office to Garfield, Garfield got assassinated, and then Chester Arthur came over. Do you know the three presidents who was in 1841? Uh, no. We have to go back to our set, our first shortest term president. So Van Buren ended his presidency, Harrison took over, died literally a month later, and then John Tyler took over. Okay. Nobody remembers John Tyler? Nobody remembers John Tyler. <laughs> Nobody remembers him. And that is some fun facts. I like that. Thank you. I thought it was really interesting. It was. I have a book on Garfield. That's why I'm going to read on the airplane. Yeah. My mom says super fascinating. What she said to me the other day was like, he didn't even want to be president. They made, they nominated him. And she goes, he has such a, it was such an interesting life. So part of me wishes I should have waited to read the book and then do it, but I'm really bad at doing book reports. So. Well, you can tell us when you get back. I was going to say, if I learn some like new things about him, I'm definitely going to, I'm going to spiel about that before I get into what my next topic, which yeah. might be about Robert Lincoln. Who knows? Sounds good. But yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's all for this week. Mm-hmm. Um, as always, you can find us online at absinthactivismarch.wordpress.com. Uh, I've got novels for sale. Um, In the Shadows of My Mind is up now. Uh, what's? Uh, it's also um, it's reduced price for March Madness until April 20th. 
Uh, I was about to say March is over. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Uh, until April 20th, you can get, I think, 15% off of In the Shadows of My Mind. Uh, if you use the Savant code that's on the, the main webpage. Um, my second book is being re-released by Guillotine Press uh, sometime in April, I think. Sure. Don't know. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll update the website once it's been re-released. Um, uh, I've got free short stories. Uh, a lot of them are scary stories because mm -hmm. I write them for Halloween every year. <laughs> um, Katie White has artwork up. We never did ask her if she's still open for commissions. Uh, we should probably do that. Uh, Katie White has artwork up. Go check it out. Um, she may be open for commissions. You can email her at the Gmail account listed on the website. Uh, Joshua Paul Brooks has music up. Uh, you should go check it out. It's really good. Um, our first uh, theme song from Chet Osman is up there. Nice. Um, what else? We tweeted. We did tweet for April 1st. Uh, go check it out. It's a really <laughs> funny one, I think. I think so, too. <laughs> um, our one and only tweet. We'll do uh, it in the next April Fool's. <laughs> it's exclusively uh, April Fool's, April Fool's April Twitter. April yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you can find that at Absinthe Act Arts on Twitter. Uh, we're on Facebook at Absinthe Activism Arts. Um you can find me on the Fediverse at um, AWM Rights at, on Gibberfish and AWM Rights on uh, uh, Mastodon. Somebody followed me on Mastodon hey, tell me that. Uh, the other day after listening to every single one of our episodes, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> uh, shout out to Utah. Um, what else do we have? We've got uh, Patreon up if you feel like giving us money. Uh, to help us improve the um, the our home studio. Uh, how do you like the studio, by the way? It's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, you like it better. It looks legit. Yeah, <laughs> it does look legit. Do you? Does it feel more comfortable recording like this? Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, if you want to help us uh, improve our home studio, uh, you can become a patron on Patreon.com at Absent Activism Arts. Um, I think that's it. Uh, you want to get out of here? Yeah, I'm ready. Sounds good. Vacation starts now. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel's on vacation. I will see you guys in two weeks, maybe with Mary. Uh, we love you and mm -hmm. have a great week.